I came into the Reformed Presbyterian tradition fairly late, you know, late in the game. But you were saturated into it, though, from yeah, the Yeah, I was just... I, so I was studying the Reformed Presbyterian tradition historically because I was in the PCUSA trying to figure out what to do. And so I was reading Westminster, reading about the changes from the in the Westminster from the original to the American, reading about the Westminster actual writing of the Westminster Confession and then the history of it, the historical arguments, the legal arguments for the Westminster being actually the restoration not revolution you know that that sort of thing oh okay in the PCUSA and then when i tried to say hey look at this this stuff is great it was like nope this there's <laughs> not having any of this uh and so then um i thought i was like oh i'm the i'm there's there's no reformed presbyterians left in the whole world and what am i going to do with myself and i was living in a little apartment in uh moscow idaho reading um <laughs> reading the uh, rc sproul's magazine table talk yeah and then this article in the back about uh culture and i was like this is so good i wonder who wrote this it's douglas wilson moscow idaho and i was like wait i'm in moscow idaho who is this guy so i'd look him up in the phone book and just walk down and knock on the door <laughs> and the the address it's is this, this it's like a between it's like next to an insurance agent and so i'm like i don't even know what i'm getting myself into and so i walk through the front door and it's a church office and you got chris lamaro sitting right there and i say hi i'm i'm uh, looking to talk to whoever wrote this article right here <laughs> and she's opens up the book and she's like, Oh, he's got an appointment available in two weeks. I was like two weeks. Who is this guy who has two weeks out of appointments in Moscow, Idaho. And she's like, who are you? It's like, Oh, I'm the youth pastor of the PCUSA church. She's like, Oh, he's going to want to talk to you. Give me one second. She goes back and comes back out. And it's like, yeah, come on in. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> so I walk back there and I'm like, Hi, I'm just here because I'm reading table talk and you know, I'm going through this, this, problem in the PCUSA and I don't know what to do and and uh super gracious he just said um he was like well let's talk through it and um and he and he was like yeah you should maybe talk to my dad too he knows the history of that church and so I talked to Jim Wilson as well and they just kind of walked me through like you're not gonna reform the PCUSA all by yourself you're not even a minister you're getting ready to go to seminary and they're like you should well jim wilson said just preach the gospel real loud and you'll, you'll get fired it'll make it easy and doug was like don't cause any waves <laughs> leave quietly <laughs> <laughs> so i got the exact opposite advice that's from the two of them. funny <laughs> everybody thinks doug's a complete yeah. opposite way oh, yeah no he's he's like it's you know if 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 you're gonna cause, don't cause waves unless it's the right thing to do in the moment. And it's not yeah. the right thing to do for, um, for you. You don't have, you don't, God hasn't given you a position of authority in that church. Um, you're, you're doing Bible studies for the teenagers, which is good work, but that's not a office in the church. Right. So, um, and, uh, and then I ended up getting, uh, fired over my opposition to, uh, 
to Freemasonry Sunday. <laughs> oh, you didn't like, like the Free- Freemasons coming? Well, in? I didn't know anything about them. And, and so I, I call my mom and she's like, I don't really know about the Freemasons, but I know I grew up being told any good Lutheran girl is not in the Freemasons. <laughs> I was like, okay, that makes me nervous because my grandparents are pretty amazing. And so then I looked into it and I was like, yeah, this isn't okay. This is this is this isn't something that you can meld together. This is probably with, yeah. yeah. So I went into the pastor and said, I I got concerns about this. And um and he, he said, Well, some of our biggest tithers are Freemasons, so we don't rock the boat. And I was like, that's a joke we tell. We don't say that in real life, right? right That's a joke yeah. that we tell. Yeah. And uh, he, he he was kind of an old line PCUSA guy, and it was he he was one year from retirement, and you know he was he was counting counting poles uh, on the side of the highway, <laughs> waiting for his exit. <laughs> so so uh, I ended up writing a letter to the elders and. It didn't go well. They were Freemasons. Like, so, oh, oh, were yeah. they? Like, yeah, hey, bro. I didn't know. I mean, the the head of our diaconate and everything. So, I got I got uh, ousted there, and it it was a uh, it was a it was, it was one of those it was a defining moment. Um, but I didn't know it at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, look back, and you realize, oh, that was kind of a defining moment where. Um, you get, you lose your job for the gospel. And then I ended up uh, at Greyfriars because of that. And um, you got more volume on your work too. Studying with, I'll I'll just move forward. I I back away. Well, there we go. Studying studying with, uh, (laughs) with Doug and Peter Lightheart and, 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 you know, finding people that were interested in, um, in that the actual historic, you know, traditional historic Christianity, not kind of the modern, modern American Christianity, not, and, and not even just, um, what, what do the reform, what did the reformers say Christianity, but people that are reading the church fathers, reading medieval Christians, trying to actually say what, what are the things that we have always believed. Um, you know, okay, so don't forget what you just said. All right, because here's something I have to ask you, because it's going to come back around to that. Okay. And there's something that just <laughs> happened to me that makes me think about what you're saying and how important it is. So with, we, we were talking, and you said at some point in our conversations, you went into a cave and with a library yeah. for 20 years and didn't come back out until recently, okay? <laughs> right, yeah. So, Take me to the time. What era? When was that? So you, when when is it that you decided to go to Greyfriars? Yeah. So uh, I decided to go to well. So I after I was lo- lost my job at the church, I went into Doug's office and I said, I don't quite know what to do with myself. Um, I had I didn't have a college degree. I had failed out slash gotten kicked out of college. Um, my first attempt and tried to ruin my life <laughs> and, uh, got, got the two by four to the head and in the process, um, met, 
I'd, I'd known my wife in high school um, and we ran into each other again. And um, in like five weeks later, we were engaged. So we we went straight from friends to engaged. We went on our first date the day after we got engaged. Short engagement, got married and was and had been doing had been working for churches and and worked in the public schools for a little bit did uh was a uh, they were short in the um special ed program and so I was able to get work teaching special ed without a degree because they didn't have enough people I actually really enjoyed that taught special ed for a little bit and then um got a job in a church and uh, was sort of interested and was at the PCUSA, came across a Van Til article and then thought, what is this? I got to look into more of this. The Amazon algorithm said, if you like Van Til, you should also read Machen. So I read mm. Christianity and Liberalism. Mm. I was 20, 20 years old. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have no clue what Christianity is. Right. I'm reading Machen. And his descriptions of Christianity, his descriptions of liberalism, I'm recognizing. Yeah, because you're saying, in there. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm living this, and so I thought, okay, I've got a this is this is the false religion that has hold of the PCUSA, mm-hmm. and it's had a hold of it for generations. And but when he's describing Christianity, I'm not recognizing it, and mm. so that's when I that's when I said, okay, I've got to get. Um, I've, I've got to look more into this. Well, Machen actually recommends, um, he recommends the, uh, the, oh, who's the German American theologian that he wrote a big eight volume church history, uh, Philip Schaff, right? So Machen po- points me to Philip Schaff. So I get Philip Schaff's church history and I start reading it and I think, yeah, I don't know Christianity. And so that is, so that's when I start digging in. Um, and so that leads me to get the, the church father set from Philip Schaff. Um, and at the same time, uh, come across R.C. Sproul. He, uh, and go to an R.C. Sproul conference and he says, somebody says, if you can get one book, what should you get? And he says, Calvin's Institutes, Right. So I grab Calvin's, get a set of Calvin's Institutes and Philip Schaff's church history and just start reading them both. And I'm thinking, this is not what I was told Christianity is, but this make this actually makes sense of the Bible, right? Um, I had, I had started reading Jonathan Edwards right at the same time, um, because of, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards.com. My, yeah, my I remember dad, my dad had gotten saved in the Jesus people movement, but then my family had gotten burned really bad by the church when I was about two, three, they, so I had didn't grow up going to church, but my dad had started reading the Bible at, you know, he, he, he read the Bible every day before he went to work. Um, and somebody and his brother had, um, put a copy of Jonathan Edwards um, in his hand. And so I found that or he, he passed it along to me. I can't remember if he handed it to me or if I found it on the table and I read that and I thought this, this is somebody that takes the Bible seriously. 
so Jonathan Edwards, um, and, uh, right about that same time running into RC Sproul, who introduces me to John Calvin, and then Amazon introduces me to Machen, who introduces me to Philip Schaff, right? So, so, and that's when I decide I need to actually know what Christianity is because I'm, I, I have been, I've never been really told what Christianity is. So I, I start digging in there and start buying books, get John Owen's uh, found, just randomly run into a set of the works of John Owen in a, in a um, used bookstore and I had $10. So I put $10 down and I came back. It, t- it took me three months to, to buy it. So, cause it was $200. And so it's 300, $400 now. <laughs> yeah, it is. Right. So can't get, get it this for used copy put down, you know, but, and I, I just pay it off over the course of months, which was amazing that a used bookstore let me do that. But so just over the course of a few months, pay it. So get that. And John Owen, um, is a great linguist. So he's the one that starts pointing me towards the original sort uh, to the original languages. Uh, Philip Schaff, he's introducing me to new theologians that I'd never heard of, but he's also introducing me to kind of the great conversation of the Christianity of, the church. of history. Yeah, of Christianity of history. So, how is it that different philosophical uh, philosophical ideas or ways of, of thinking come into the church? Get filled with the gospel and are burst, right? Because mm. it's it's not like so, so often what we think is okay. There's false philosophies and true philosophies, and that's not really how the conversation happens, right? You get com- you get philosophies that come in, they have something right and something wrong, and the church gets hold of them, gets in a conversation with them, and starts pouring the scriptures into this philosophical I, uh, conversation and, mm-hmm. and then the true things remain and the false things get, get jettisoned. Right. So, uh, because anything that the good news is poured into, eventually it bursts. Um, and so you've got sort of these philosophical wineskins throughout history and Philip Schaff is really great at explaining these things. Um, well, and, and just too, you also come to this point in Christianity where um, things aren't necessarily, necessarily as sanitized as we like to think that they should be. Right. One of the things that I've, I, when I came into Christianity, uh, growing up in it, um, 80s, 90s, and then became a reform, reformed, reformedom has changed, I think, especially with the large leading of Baptist culture, because you get to these almost absolute um, moments that are, or should I say not absolute because that's the wrong wording, more sanitized. We make it way more sanitized than it currently is. And what I mean by sanitized is that we can't deal with a mess. When, when, <laughs> right, when you, when you right. come into Christianity, the era that I came into it, if there's a mess, you burn the building down. It's kind of like how I feel about spiders. Listen, if a spider <laughs> rolls up on me and I flick it off my arm and that spider, spider can't be found, I'm going to light the whole building on fire. <laughs> right, yeah. And that's how Christianity, when I came into it, um, and I became reformed. That's how it was. We don't deal with messes very well. We we just burn the whole thing down. Right. And yeah. so when you come into from Philip Schaff, what he starts doing is really saying, this is how over time in history, Christianity dealt with problems because he's just right. recounting history. This is how it, it yeah. operated. 
Right. And you know, so you have some of the some of the things that have become you know guys guys that have become my heroes and stories that have become really formative for me are those times when the church can't figure out what to do. Mm. Right? That uh, like the when um when Augustine Augustine of Canterbury comes over and begins converting the Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons had been oppressing the Bretons, the Christians that were there, and sort of pushed them over into Wales. Um, the Welsh used to actually be the people that ruled what is now England, but they were pushed over by the Anglo-Saxons who were heathens. The Anglo-Saxons get converted and the uh, the Did you just call a people group heathens? Heathens, yeah. You called a yeah. people group heathens. A people group. They were a heathen oh. people group. Oh, we, we can right? do they, that? Yeah, well, yeah. That, um, and, but they were a tribal people. So they they went through, the, they sort of were converted in waves and in, in mass, right? There's 100,000 baptisms over the course of two years. Mm. One of which was the king, but we don't have, the king was just converted in one of the mass conversions, mass baptisms, they just all come in and get baptized. But you you don't walk away from your heathenism as quickly as that. Mm. You you are you know you're a stone that was in the the devil's uh, palace that you get you get peeled out, you get washed off in baptism, and you become now a stone in the in the kingdom of God and in the the temple of the Lord. But it's it's not the conversion is not full on instantaneous. And so what ends up happening is the Welsh Christians, the Breton Christians who have been Christians since the, the second century. Um, and now these new Anglo-Saxon Christians go to war with one another about whether or not the Bishop of Rome or the, 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 uh, the bishop in Canterbury is the archbishop of the whole island or not. Um, they're, the Anglo-Saxon Christians are loyal to this bishop because he's the one that brought them the gospel. Right, right. They're coming to the story middle way in. <laughs> right, middle way in. Um, the the Bretons, the, so the the Bretons, they sent, uh, they sent somebody to the Nicene Council and so they're like, well, no, we, but we've been here longer than you. You're brand new Christians, but we were Christians longer. And they had the date of Easter um, f from before the Nicene Council. And the Anglo-Saxons celebrate Easter. Uh, they, they calculate the date of Easter differently. Right? One calculates the date of Easter as the first Sunday after the first full moon after the equinox. The other calculates the date of Easter as uh, the first Sunday after the first full moon after the Passover. Mm -hmm. right? And they end up in a war and we're told it's a war over the dating of Easter, but it's really a war over who, who gets to decide what kind of Christianity is established on the, the island as a whole. Does the Bishop of Rome get to decide or, or does the, the, this church that's set up more in a, in a clan system um, get to decide? And 
and uh, Schaff makes a comment of it only took them a hundred years to come to peace with one another, right? Something along those lines. And I remember at the time thinking, only a hundred years. That's a that's a long time. Like that's Almost a lot of gener- two generations. Right? Yeah, it's, it's multiple generations. But in terms of some of the historical conflicts, that's actually a short one. Then mm. they they come to realize, uh, they, and they they actually all come to accept the Archbishop of Canterbury's authority over the island as a whole, which uh, eventually comes back to cause more problems in the Reformation. Um, so it's an important story later for um, that has to do that, that that is brought up again when they're discussing whether the Westminster Confession can be written legally or, you know, can, can you have a, a legal confession that is for the island as a whole? Well, mm. yeah, you can, because actually the island as a whole had a Christian authority before the Bishop of Rome established his authority here. So there's an um, an innate authority to the church that is outside of the bishops, the, the Bishop of Rome's authority, right? So in the Westminster Confession, they're still just, th- these stories are still important because they become part of the legal argument for the establishment of the Westminster Confession as a legal document that's legal, that legally binds the entire continent. Now they end up, going back on it in England, but keeping it in Scotland, where Scotland it remains a legal document. Let's go and Scotland. In, and in England, they end up uh, establishing instead the 39 Articles, which are also a good, do- which is also a good document. Sure. But it doesn't have the historical weight that the Westminster does legally. Um, but it, so, so these arguments are all, the, I'm realizing this is actually that Christianity is a public religion, right? That that it's a public religion that has legal traditions that has uh, th- that you can say this is a true tradition, this is a false tradition, this is an older tradition, this is a newer tradition, um, and that the Bible is the only ultimate authority. But there are all these other sub authorities that are trying. Uh, they're fighting for power. Yeah. They're, sometimes they're fighting for power. Sometimes they're trying to establish truth. Sometimes they're trying to establish truth, but they're they're wrong about the truth. But they're good men that are making bad legal arguments. Uh, and then you, yeah, um, so and then you've you got, have more patience for them, right? Yeah. So right? you learn like, yeah. okay, well, no, a public. If we're not, we're not a, we don't exist as a secret society. We don't exist as a Gnostic mystery religion. We don't exist as uh, where each individual has a singular connection to God. And that is the authoritative um, relationship or we exist as a people with, uh, with developing legal traditions, uh, with developing, uh, uh, developing language, a developing, uh, conversation that the American church has opted out of. And that's, that's what I was going to get to. So, because that's where I was coming around to you. Um, so you go into this, you just kind of gave us a synopsis, a, a short summary of how you ended up where you are. Right. I was yeah. going to, I would have said it probably in a sentence where I would have said, well, 
you go into this library because you start really not realizing you don't understand what Christianity is and you, you lock yourself in there in a hole for 20 years and you come out <laughs> and you realize that no one. So the reason that you went into the library is to figure out what Christianity is. You come out and no one knows what Christianity is yeah. out here either. And right? I it's think completely it's, disconnected. It, I think it's even gotten worse. Right. Oh, yes. In the, in the last 20 years. Right? Well, because that, we've lost uh, in that last 20 years. Um, so the reason I was bringing that up was there was just recently discovered in, I believe, where's it? Statue of Robert E. Lee at? I can't remember where it is. Um, but uh, South Carolina, somewhere like that. They discovered a time capsule from 1887 that was buried underneath the statue. Now, they've removed the statue. And that's the only reason they discovered this time capsule from 1887 okay. that was buried there. So that's They've a whole forgotten that they'd put a time capsule in. No that's one amazing. even know. It was gone. People, people forgot about it. It wasn't even – there's a time what? capsule there? Yeah. No. So this, there were records somewhere. They need a Gandalf that, like, goes and digs through the libraries and finds that there's a time capsule. So as they're deciding to remove American history, for whatever reason, they're just going to remove it. Yeah. Uh, they find a time capsule underneath there. And I was, I was watching with the sound off and I hadn't even finished the whole video yet. But as I was watching the video, I always watch my videos with the sound off. I, when I see something on Facebook or Twitter, I first watch the video with the sound off because I want to observe the body language of the people who are communicating. Because there's something about the way that they communicate, well, whether or not they believe it, if they're afraid, um, if they're upset. And, and then if that doesn't drive me to click the sound, then I don't finish watching the video. Okay. You know, if I, you know, so the video, the body language and the people around drives me with interest to say, why is it that this is making them do whatever they're doing and why they're reacting that way? So I, I read people that way first. And when I turned on, I didn't turn on the sound cause I, I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. We had to do the show, but watching people's body language was they were in awe of what it was that they had found because they felt like something in the past was going to tell them something now in the present right. about something to happen in the future. Right. And they felt like that their past, whatever was left for them by the people before them was going to give them a clue about how they were so they could understand how they should be so they can determine how they are going to be later. Right. And so but it was amazing how special they were handling this so that they can get the information inside so they can understand these truths. And they had on these blue gloves and they had all these tools set around them and everybody has their cell phones out and their cameras and they're viewing this and they're just like, oh, what is it going to say? And here we are right now with such a rich Christian, Amer Christian American history that is attached to Christian right. uh, history period going all the way back to Genesis and we don't even act like that any of that has any depth whatsoever yeah. to help us at all. And I thought that it was really important because so last time we were talking, we were talking about the enlightenment and I walked away like, Oh yeah, I got it. And then I listened to it again. I was like, I don't understand any of it. Like I understand what's going on, but there's so much to it that we didn't get a chance right. to go all the way through it. But it's the exact same thing. If, if we continue to operate the way that we're, even the people who were, we would consider, I don't know, infantile or um, uh, what do they call them? Uh, what do they call the guys before? Uh, cavemen. The cavemen oh, types. Yeah, yeah. We consider these people to be in that era of that time. We're way more advanced than they are. 
We have way more. We know more stuff than they do. And yet we're completely detached from the realities that that got us to where we're currently at right now. You were talking about they're arguing over Easter. We're arguing over transgendered boys right. playing in sports. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> like we're we are way past whether or not we should be having a national day of Easter that everybody celebrates, man. Right. We're talking about whether or not our boys and girls, if boys can pummel if girls can, in sports. Right. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is it, it's because of the, it, it's because we have, it, it, people are never going to exist without an origin story, right? We are going to tell mm. an origin story and the origin story that we tell is either a story where God sets the God sets up the world and says, this is, this is the nature of the world, or it's an origin story wherein the nature of the world is malleable. Mm. And, and we are trying to become powerful enough to be the ones in charge of how it's formed. Right. So we're either mm-hmm. submitting to the nature that God establishes we're saying amen when god says this is that let let me tell you what this is right here here is eve she is a a woman she is the the word for woman in hebrew is isha which means uh fire right let me here's here's the heat right um that you need you're what the helper that Adam needs is named fire, right? She is, um, and and he can't do it without her. And so he has to look at her and say, okay, I understand what she is. She is, uh, the helper that I need to be able to accomplish what I, what God has given me to do. And I can't do it without her. And then it's his job to woo her into the mission, right? That is, uh, if we, if we, understand that God sets up the nature of things, then we, then the way what Adam should have done is said, right. He, he's not, he doesn't make her submissive. Her submission is all a gift. He, and he needs her to, um, complete the, the job that God has given. And so he has to woo her onto his team, treat her, um, the way that, that she treat her in such a way that she says, let me give you, I will join your mission. I will come under your mission. Sub means under mission means the, the, the mission you're on. Right. So he has to woo her onto his mission. And so that she gives the gift of submitting and joining, taking on his mission as her own. That's what he needs. That's what God tells him. Now, um, the other option is you can be like God, right? You can set the nature of things and, um, and be under it's no one's submission. Yeah. And be an, and, and everyone, and, and then you're the one going around telling people what a thing is and how it works. And you get, a, and if you're powerful enough, you can get hold of a thing and turn it to your will turn the nature of a thing because well the thing doesn't have a nature in and of itself it only has what you use it for right if you are god then you're setting the nature of a thing and um the 
the mm, that's really good, Jason. That's the enlightenment because, is. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, no. I want to. Well, I want you to finish. The, the enlightenment is is so in the high, in the high medieval era, you had people beginning to try and say that, and it was, they were using Aristotelian philosophical categories to say um, to 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 separate out uh, the nature from the it's it starts in in the it, like everything does it starts in our definitions of the lord's supper when we start the way we define the lord's supper is the metaphysic that is going to spread into everything else okay wait wait you you, you got to flesh that out okay so that's that's deep the in the the high middle ages well it starts in the 1200s but it it becomes um acceptable doctrine later than it's first put forward uh the but the doctrine that is considered an acceptable definition of the Lord's Supper, but not the only definition of the Lord's Supper at the time, is that um, that the when the priest stands over the bread and the wine and says the words of institution, that the that the internal nature of the bread and the wine becomes the the body and blood of Christ. It's it's accidental nature, it's externals all stay bread and wine, but the priest has power over the internal nature of things. Mm. If he has the, if he's given the authority um, by the institution and he is, uses the right words um, that he can change the nature of things, right? That, and that, that understanding uh, of, of the malleability of, of the nature of things uh which I is not the people that originally put it forward uh, were discovering new metaphysical categories with Aristotle, and they're, they I don't think they were bad dudes. They just didn't realize the mistake. They they, didn't they had no this. idea which yeah, way this line they, was going right. to take. Because it's them. hundreds of years before that you get transgenderism. <laughs> yeah, that metaphysical categorization becomes uh, first. It becomes official. And then it becomes required, and then um, to teach something else is is you know, is not allowed anymore. But the reformers come in with a a covenantal understanding. Calvin's really good on the Lord's Supper because he, he brings this covenantal understanding of the world in which God defines everything, and so the God defines how we do the Lord's Supper. Right. And he defines what we can and can't say about it. And that it's a, that it's his covenant promises that define the fact that we will have communion with him here, that it's not there's not metaphysical categories. It's not the words of the priest. It's not anything like that. It is God's word tells us here is the place God will meet us. Right. He will mm. meet us here that he and that he is going to give us himself here in a mystery by the power of the spirit, but it's, we know that we know it because of the covenantal promises that God has bound himself to, right? That God has bound himself to meet us here. And so we know it's true um, because God says it. So he ultimately sets in place objectivity. Yeah. Objectivity through God's, um, Covenantal self-binding, 
right? Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we don't have, we're never given power over God, but God has bound himself to us and bound himself to his word via promises, right? And And Calvin's pulling this from the church fathers, right? He's not just making it up. He's pulling it from the Bible, the church fathers, the, um, he's, he's saying, this is, this is actually, um, an important historical point that, um, is made and he's, he's trying to, he was the premier church father scholar of his day. So, right. so, so then how does, so you're saying, if I understand this correctly, how we understand the Lord's supper has to do with how we understand authority, which then connects to how we get the enlightenment. Right. So, so there's a way there, there is an understanding of authority that we are over the nature of things. And there's an understanding of authority that God sets the nature of things and our authorities, the, the job of our authority is to submit, submit to, to the nature, yeah. the nature of things. Right. So the enlightenment takes this, takes off in that direction of we can, if we have enough, if we have the authority and the the system or the magic words or you know the, once it becomes science if we have the scientific you know if, if we can discover the formula um behind it then we can actually change the nature or get control of get power over the nature of things um with enough power and authority and the right system and so you you can see how that um, it ends up becoming uh, seated. Um, the the seat of that authority is the the civil magistrate is where they settle, right? Originally, there you know you have people arguing, well, what could possibly have enough authority to do that? Um, Post Hegel, um, the everybody comes to agree that the civil magistrate, if if given enough power can control the nature of things. Right? Okay. I'm going to stop you because you just brought up Hegel. You said post Hegel, like, Oh yeah, Hegel. Yeah. Duh. Hey, yeah, everybody knows yeah. Hegel. Oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so but, Hegel. Just uh, shortly kind of just give me like what, what a post Hegel is. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Hegel's a philosopher who he sets forward this system of the way that the ideal, um, that the ideal makes itself known in history is through the power structures of the world. Right. So it's actually just, it's really old fashioned Gnosticism. Okay. Um, Okay. It's it. it, So it's a Gnostic understanding that there is a great chain of being and there's this ideal spirit at the top of the chain of being. And that, um, and the question is always, well, how do we, how do we get to it or how does it get to us? In Gnosticism, uh, and those, most Gnostics have some sort of mystery religion through which you attain your your you attain your way up the great chain of being until you get to be pure spirit or in line with pure spirit or closer to pure spirit. Hegel, the difference in his Gnosticism is that actually pure spirit is pressing its way down into the world, pure idea, um, or pure ideal, the, the, the pure ideal is pressing its way into the world. And so this is, this is sort of a post-Christian 
understanding of Gnosticism because pagan Gnosticism was always that, I mean, the gods were up there, the ideal was up there, and we're trying to escape here and get to there. Jesus so influences the imagination of the West that even their Gnosticism it's is Christian. Christianized, right? So now pure spirit yeah. is pushing down into the world. Well, how how is it doing it? Well, it's through this process of uh, an, an ideal comes along uh, and then its uh, opposite is then proposed and the two of them meet in the middle and you get a new thing, right? So you've got a thesis, antithesis, and a synthesis. Um, and the way that that's all done through these, through the authority of the government, right? the authority of the government mm. is actually the way that the pure, pure ideal is pressing its way into. That, that's just present. a perverted post-millennialism too. It is. A, it is. And that's what, what ends up happening is in order to reject that Hegelianism, we reject postmillennialism. We, we <laughs> drop eschatology because he's because <laughs> he is secularizing an optimistic eschatology. Yeah, but you know what though? I think what's careful if you're not careful too though, he's secularizing Christianity because it, you can almost mm-hmm. if you ask people if you take that his Gnostic Christianity and you you ask people if they believe that they absolutely would say yes. Right. Because that's how they understand Christianity, which goes back to your point earlier. You're like, I realized that I didn't really know what Christianity was. Right. I don't think we do either. Because listen, when I started understanding that type of Gnosticism, the reason why we are jumping into this hot boiling pot of critical race theory is because it's exactly what we believe about the world. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 that's the assumption we have all this, the assumptions are in place. Yes. And so we've, and so we're basically set up to become the antithesis of their thesis. And the mm. only thing that can happen is a synthesis, a synthesis because we have the same assumptions going in, or maybe we don't have the same assumptions, but we don't know. We don't have an the true assumptions at hand that we can say, actually, we're going to argue from these assumptions. We're historicists, right? Christianity is a historic religion. Um, you know, that it's not a Gnostic religion. It's not. We're not saved by education. We're not saved by new ideas, right? We're saved by an act of God in history through His Son, who was born on a particular day, uh, through the womb of a particular virgin. Uh, was that he? He was God acting. In history, he was God incarnate. God steps into history, and then that affects history in a historic way, in a historical way. So I see, I see this play out in two places, particularly in Christianity. This type of thinking. One of the places I see it play out was in 2020, when, and this is the Enlightenment mixed with Hegel. This whole whole thing when people started arguing over Romans 13. Yep. Yeah. So, and and praise God, I've only seen one or two groups, John MacArthur and those guys, they repented, but I think they repented for different reasons. I don't care. They repented for different reasons. They didn't see the whole play, but they were able to see this one particular thing and say, oh, this is, this ain't right. Right. This this don't line up. 
But Romans 13 became the linchpin on whether you were enlightenment is saturated or not. <laughs> right. Because well, just the yeah, the way that we interpret it, do we interpret it in an ahistorical way or a historical way? So because uh, this is the conversation I had over and over. And, and um, I mean, we we talked about this right at the beginning of it. My wife and I looked at the situation and we both and and came to different conclusions. Right. And because it was not straightforward out the gate what was going on, what we should do. Um, but the the discussions that we had right out the gate were, okay, so we're supposed to be as good as citizens as we can as Christians, right? Yeah. We're, we're supposed to, we are supposed to submit to the authorities that God has put over us. As it came out the gate, though, the question was, well, who is the real, who is actually the authority, though? Right? Is, and that's a historic question, not a, when you interpret it in a, a Gnostic or Enlightenment way, it's a that's just a question of well, who, who, who has the power right now at this moment, right? Mm. And the um, what or or you can even say who has God given the power to right now in this moment is a still way of is still the same way of saying it, right? Right. If we say that you just look around and you say, well, that's the guy in charge, and right? So we have to listen to him, or do we say? wait a second, what is the law of our land? Um, and and this is where the debates between the Scottish and the English immediately be, became helpful for me in this situation mm. um, because there there's a great book, Lex Rex. Yes. I think it's Samuel, Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford, yep. Who worked through these issues in, you know, in, in a particular context saying, well, is the king law is the king over the law or is the law over the king right and and he, he argues historically and theologically uh, from the scriptures and from the development of canon law christian church law that uh that actually the law as it is established is over the king the king has to submit to it the king does not have a divine right over the law there's a legal way to change the law and there's an illegal way to change the law. And the king has to submit himself to the law. So um, we have layers of law in America because we are a layer. We are we are a layer cake of legal institutions, uh, a layer cake of authorities. And it, the Constitution is not at the top of it all. The Constitution is how you arbitrate between legal authorities that are co-equals. That's, that's how it was su supposedly developed and set up. So the president doesn't get to tell the governors what to do, right? The president is an authority. Um, he, he's an executive authority uh, over one set of over one institution. Mm-hmm. The governor is an executive authority over a co-equal institution, and the constitution is how you arbitrate between those two co-equal institutions, right? So um, the the rights that are established, you know, let's say the first 10 amendments, right? The, those, those rights were considered – they were – 
everybody looked at those and said, well, yeah, those are the rights of an Englishman. Those are the, the rights of, of English speaking peoples that have been established through legal means over time. And they were written out, not because they were being given, but because they were observed, uh, they were being observed. They didn't want to be forgotten. Right. So, right. so the federal government doesn't give me the right of free speech. I have the right of free speech. And uh, the federal government is acknowledging that right is there and that when arbitrating between these institutions, um, we can't th – these are some of the places where we are limited, We that it's not our in our authority to arbitrate these issues. So the president stands up and says, hey, everybody, I need uh, – we need to social distance. There's this bad thing coming. We need to social distance. We need to put on masks. And you look around and say, okay, he's asking us to do something. With the knowledge I have, that might be wise or not wise, um, and you know, you make a decision. When they start mandating things, you say, "Well, wait a second. Do you are you the authority in this particular spot?" That's a historical question, not. But we approached it um, like Gnostics asking, "Does he have the power or not?" Mm. Right? Not. Well, what is what are the limitations of his authority, um, and he, the, there, there were even times when he said he knew he was overstepping his authority, but that it would give him the it would give him time to establish some of the things that he wanted to establish while he that waited was, for the courts to act. Right? That was Joe Biden. Yeah, he it probably yeah. won't go through the courts, but that gives us time. It buys but us it gives time. Us time, in a few right? Buys us time. Yeah. And you, you think, well, now at that point, I'm no longer submitting. I'm no longer obeying Romans 13 if I submit to him. Because he's not the authority. He's not the government of the land, right? He's not the, he's, 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 uh, I, by listening to him, I'm saying Romans 13 is not important to me. I don't believe Romans 13. And not just, and not just him, but anyone then who begins to act outside of their authority given right. from local legislation to, that's your mayor, that's your sheriff, that's yep. your... This is something, though, that, Jason, I'm going to take it here. This is something that we've been comfortable with as it relates to the police doing illegal searches mm -hmm. and seizures on citizens because of a broken taillight. Right. Yeah, th so this right. is where... So, <laughs> so, so this is one of those places that um, I, I had a... A good friend who I uh, was an elder in my church who was a sheriff's detective, and he he said, "You know, we the the law is perf purposely set up so that we can pull over anyone at any time because the law is contradictory. So everyone is always breaking it. That's right. And he and he said, and that's on purpose. And we're told not to abuse it." By our sheriff, <laughs> but but every, but everybody looks at it and is like, well, so there's nobody that's not breaking the law. Like, yeah, don't don't abuse that. That's that that. But it was changed before he got there. It was changed before this sheriff got there, and and the sheriff actually doesn't have the authority to fix it. He because he doesn't make the laws. He enforces the laws, and so when you have a good sheriff 
that looks at that and says, no, this is wrong. We're not going to take advantage of that. Um, that's, that's good. He's, he's trying to stay legal when he knows the law is illegal. Right. And he's not like that everywhere though. No, it's not. Well, and because of the time that it's been allowed to run out like this, it's becoming so normalized that nobody remembers a time when it wasn't like this. Right. This goes back to the connection with, you know, I was writing this down as you were talking because we have, I want to say history, but I kind of want to merge history and covenantal understanding Mm -hmm. because that time capsule was to leave people a trajectory of where they were, how we got here, what we came to the conclusions on and how we survived and how you need to follow with what we laid out. You know, that's, and so in covenant relationship with God, that is the part of the requirements. Um, Fathers, raise your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so that historical relationship between, so daddy, how do we get here? Right. Well, let me tell you, there's this guy named uh, Adam, (laughs) (laughs) right? And then, and then Abraham, right? And then there's this flood, right? And then you just, so you want to take your kids through this historical, and then you want to take them through the Reformation and church history. You want to take them through these times because that's all their history, um, and so one of the things that I've been trying to do, you know, in February, I, I try to capitalize off of Black History Month to try and remind people of how much black history isn't so much just black history. It's American history. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually attached because we want to segregate it out just to. But I want to take that time to say, actually, the way that we operate and some of the things that we have as far as laws were put in place because we didn't actually grasp the full gravity of Imago Day, And so right. <laughs> this is one of the moments where we woke up and said, oh, yeah. And I want to show how it brings it to so that I don't want white people to feel like black history isn't something that this part of them. No, 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 no. Right. Yeah. This is this is a shared history. We all have this together. We are all in this together and no one gets to idolize this for themselves. No, this is ours. Yeah. This is yours. This is, the, this is ours. If you're an American, we got this. If you're a Christian, this is ours. This belongs to us and we need to learn from it and see the beauty of it and say, okay, we need to reject this. But if we don't have that kind of understanding, then we just move into um, this arbitrary form of authority, which is where we're currently at. And when 2020 hits and with what I think is coming next is going to be they're going to take emergency orders and move that into the racial categories. Yeah, um, I, I expect you know, you're right. And we're already starting to see that with elite stuff is wherever they can get a move to get authority is what they're going to go after because that's what postmodernism does. Yeah. Where's the authority and how do I flip it? That's what they're good at. Um, and so yeah. when and I saw, but it's not even authority because it's power, right? They're, they're yeah. not, they're, that's true. They, that's true they merge authority and power together into and and say that's a good distinction that, yeah that and and authority and power are are something that have been pulled into their own lanes historically in the church so that um you can use either for good or for bad uh, but they're not they're not the same thing they can be merged in a person you know yeah. somebody that has authority and he has power they can, but they can be separated in, in a person as well so and and but we've done that through our philosophical inquiry in the, in the church but also through our storytelling in the church for, like we tell stories like robin hood 
um, about wh- what happens when the somebody has the power, but they don't have the authority, right? That's Prince John has the power, mm-hmm. but not the authority to do it. And, and so you have Robin Hood as the good guy opposing the guy trying to exercise a, a false authority by having enough power, right? So he's got the sheriff on his side. The weapons are on his side. And so he's, but, but his authority is not there, right? So it's, it's he's usurped the authority using power. And so that's, so that's why Robin Hood's a good guy, right? It's because he's defending the true authority of the king who's currently off on the crusades uh, over against the guy who has power, but he doesn't have power. Robin Hood doesn't have power. And so he's using everything he's got to oppose the false authority that, or the the power that is setting itself up as an authority. So we try to turn that into a, like a socialist I, tale or something. Yeah, that's exactly but, what we're turning. Cause I was thinking of basically what Robin Hood is, is a guy who chooses not to live by lies. Right. Exactly. I'm, exactly. I'm not going to live by that lie. And so everything I do looks like a vigilante, but really I'm living in authority yeah. with what's in, with, with the, the, I'm living under the real authority that you're trying to bu- buffer against. Yeah. That they're, that they're, the real authority is currently being usurped by the guy who has some power. Right. Um, and the power that it's he's he's using coercive power. Romans to, thirteen, man, that's mm-hmm. boom. That is exactly what we just went through in twenty twenty. Was that exact setup? And the people who are sitting up here saying they're not the authority, they don't get to do that. Uh, we're looked at like Robin Hood, like right. you guys are these group of vigilantes out there having church on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the the Washington Constitution, it's. It gives the governor 30 days of emergency powers, and then it has to be re-upped legally, right? It never was re-upped. So um, for 30 days, it was the right thing to do when he said, here's a mask mandate. It's an emergency. He's got 30 days of that. And then Is it that Inslee? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Chairman Inslee. Um, <laughs> Chairman Inslee. <laughs> so... Uh, so for 30 days, he's got the uh, the right to do that. But then when it wasn't re-upped and when they refused to even have the discussion, at that point you say, well, you don't have the authority to tell me to do that anymore. And then it becomes a question of wisdom. Like if people are dying in the streets, um, you know, if, if it's a real pandemic, you know, then um, there might be a, a reason to continue listening because you look around and you say – well, no, they haven't been a- because of the pandemic. There's chaos, and they haven't been able to get to the the get together to re up the authority. But he's telling us the right thing to do. Or, but at that point, it's a wisdom issue. Is he? Um, it's no longer an authority question. Uh, when you look I don't around, know, I would question that. Well, but here here's what I mean: is at that point, you have to make a decision based on other data besides he's telling me to do it or not. Well, I think even legally, he doesn't have that authority. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So he doesn't doesn't have the authority legally. That's why at that point it becomes advice and it might be good advice or bad advice. Right. Because that's all he can do. That's all he can do. do. Yeah. So even, even whatever he implemented supposedly by law wasn't set up to do what he actually did. So, well, he's got you know, thirty. He's got thirty days of emergency powers. So anything after that, they um, is not legal. 
they never proved an emergency. No, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> they but, never proved but, an emergency. But, but the, the, um, uh, what's hard is I don't think, I don't know if anybody knew there wasn't any experience with this sort of thing. So you're getting here's here are the medical professionals telling us, hey, this is an emergency. Hey, this is a big deal. And that's the why I say they still don't have the authority without the proof of the emergency, even though we're getting all sorts of warning. We still um, we still have the authority to make those decisions about what we're going to do out in public until there is an emergency. And even in, within but, that sense of emergency, their ability to be able to crunch down on us depends on if we're within that emergency. Yeah. Right. The, so even this is where this is where as our representatives, because they were voted in, I'd have to I'd have to go look and read to make sure. But I do think that they that the the right to declare an emergency is within the is within the office legally. So sure. they, they should have to prove it. Um, but the right to declare it, I don't think it depends on them. I don't think there's a step in which they have to prove there's an emergency. Well, the, see, because this is the problem is that which now, may have been an, an oversight in writing the law, right? <laughs> but it, that doesn't make it illegal. A, a bad law can still be a legal law um, and it sure. needs to be fixed. But I, and I would have to go, look, I, I haven't I don't remember how the law is written um, because what happens now is what we were just talking about. If they can do this without proven emergency, then here we go, buddy. Yep. A lot oh, yeah. of people are offended about this and it's cause I just saw an article inside of the um, BBC news that had um, a woman diagnosed with uh, climate change. Yeah. I saw that too. It's terrifying. Okay. That's terrifying. How do you get, what's the, what's the antidote? <laughs> this is where this, the, so, but this is where you, you're, you have to have some, somebody with enough power. You have to give somebody the, that has enough power, the authority to go literally take over nature. Right? <laughs> well, that's, and, and that's what's coming. That That's what's coming. But the question because nobody's even asking the question like, well, what's the right climate for yeah. the world? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are what's we the in the right climate? Is this yeah. the pro is this the right climate? Should climate change to something different? Is there a better climate? Like, we, but we don't know how to we don't know how to ask and answer those questions because we don't know what conversation we're having. Well, even right? with we history, think we're having question a question about authority and power. We're actually having a question. We're actually having a discussion about the nature of things, but we've already given in to a particular answer that's false. But this is why you can't have that discussion without history. And I mean all of history. Mm -hmm. As soon as I start looking at the attitudes of my kids and how my house is running and just, just going back to home and I'm like, man, my kids got short, snappy attitudes with each other. I don't go, what's wrong with them? Right. And so I'm going to fix that. My <laughs> first response is I must be, being snappy. I must be being impatient. I must not be loving them well. I must not be, am I in relationship with my wife? Are things good with us? Like what's going on? That is modeling this sort of attitude that's coming out in the fruit of my children. I, I want to check that out. 
And once I go and check that out and repent of whatever I need to repent there, then I can start actively going after the real issue, the hard issue, the things that are going on and not just the attitude on the front. So they might not see, they'll see some corrections on the attitude on the front, but I'm going to go a little deeper and stuff. They probably won't even realize that I'm doing, you know, yeah, they might not even understand why I'm doing this. Hey, come here, let's go shopping for your brother. What do you think he likes? Right. And they don't even see that that's part of it. And, and the reason I'm saying that is that so when we start seeing something happen in the climate or whatever's going on with we got I saw a town get hit with earthquake. We had towns on fire. We had birds flying. And then I saw an article in Egypt is getting hit with uh, uh, scorpions and stingers. And I was like, OK, now, yeah. listen, if you know history. Right. If you understand history, the first thing you say, y'all need to repent. Who yeah. do y'all have that y'all ain't supposed to have? Right. Okay. Right. That's, and so when I hear climate change issues, I go to Hosea 6 or 4. And I'm like, okay, we got some repenting to do. We, we, right. There is blood crying out. There is something broken in our system that is making our environment want to vomit us out. Right. And so we when- can't. When Deal with one, climate change issues. Yeah. When 1,000 wildfires start in California on the same day. A 1,000. A 1,000. And it happens to also be the day in which gay marriage is legalized. So you should say, California is trying to get rid of you people. Like the, the <laughs> land, the land has looked at you and said, we'd be better off without you, right? Australia <laughs> caught yeah. complete. All of Australia burned, all of Australia burned up. <laughs> right. Millions of animals burned up. And y'all be like, oh man, climate change. Are you insane? Yeah. That's this not is, a climate change issue. If the, in, in, when you look at it and you think, you know what we need to do? We need to give more sacrifices to our idols. Right. That, Cause that's, that's really what climate change is, is it's a, if you say well, we've got to we've got to make bigger and better sacrifices to the idols, and if you put me in charge, I'll do it. Right? That, that's that's what the argument right. ends up being. Right? And, like you haven't given me enough power, and thus AOC. I'm, yeah, right, one hundred percent. And that that's the the it because they think well, what's the the issue is that the power is spread out amongst too many people, and it needs to be focused into a particular person. Right. Um, I mean, because every tyrant thinks that they're doing the right thing. That's they, they think that they're here to save and rescue. That's and that, that's how they tell the story. And in fact, it's how so it's how Hegel begins to tell the story. They tell you, here's the future that I will bring in. Right. They give they give an eschatology. Uh, Marx says, here's the future that I will bring in. Lenin says, here's the future for Russia that I will bring in. Mao doesn't. I mean, he he's it's, here's the future that I'll bring in for China. Um, he also had the backing of Russia, so he had a lot of power already. But so he didn't need to gather as much through storytelling as some of the other guys. But that's the thing is they they give a false eschatology. I give me this power and this strength, and I will bring in. Where, whereas the Bible says, "Be faithful to God, and He will bring in." The, mm. the prosperity, right? That you don't have the power to bring in your own prosperity, but God does. So you be faithful to God. And then when the prosperity comes in, say, thank you for it. Mm-hmm. So you didn't bring it in, right? It's mm. a, it, the, it's a competing eschatologies where, but the church has said, ah, pan millennialism, dispensationalism, right? 
we don't have an eschatology that competes. <laughs> we have an eschatology that says, you know, they've got one we don't. Um, and so uh, we don't have defenses against, we don't have intellectual defenses um, and we don't have cultural defenses against communism, against socialism, against fascism, which we've been living in, living with fascism since the 70s, early 80s. So maybe even further back. You know, when we, st- when we started doing our podcast, one of the things we did was said, hey, man, everybody's Gnostic, but everybody's post-enlightenment, too. Right. Because of the Which is the same, kind of the same thing. It's the same sort of thing, right? It's um, Gnosticism's coming at it from a, 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 a particular anthropology. It's an anthropology question. What kind of creature am I? Mm-hmm. Is Gnosticism. Um, so that's, it's the meta, Gnosticism is an answer to one of the metaphysical questions. What kind of creature am I? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's, and the Enlightenment was a um, Gnostifying movement, right? It was convincing people that they were Gnostics. But it was be, because it's the only defense. Soon, if the world is, has a malleable nature, if everything in the world has a malleable nature, then the only safe place is to retreat into spirit, you know, re- retreat into the mind, retreat away from the malleable things and retreat into your ghostly part, your, your go- the ghostly aspects of your nature. I, the, in 2020, the enlightenment to me became full fledged because we were arguing over the we were arguing over authority. Like right. do they have the authority to do this. Um, where else do you see the enlightenment in play and how do you see it in play like in, in, in culture, other areas? In our culture or historically? Well, I want to get to I want you to follow in our culture and then how we got there historically. Yeah. Well, so it actually took longer for the Enlightenment to take root in America um, because we had some defenses because so many anti-Enlightenment folks left their lands that were becoming Enlightenment um, hotbeds and came to America. Right? So the pilgrims come to America uh, and the the Puritans come to America and they're trying to avoid uh, they're, they, they're uh, looking for a place where they can continue on in their old ways, in the older ways, right? the, the ways that are disappearing. Uh, so you have, you know, enlightenment thinkers like, you know, Thomas Jefferson's affected by the enlightenment, but see, here's the thing, Thomas Jefferson when America is being established, he's arguing that that we ought to be doing things not in Latin but in Anglo-Saxon. Um, you know, he's trying to establish Anglo-Saxon as the the language that people learn in college, and because he's saying we're we're trying to hold on to a specific legal and cultural tradition that is English, right? That we're not looking for a universal. Um, a universal tradition. That's what what the French revolution is arguing for a universal tradition. Um, And the only way to 
establish a new universal brotherhood is to cut off the head of everyone that won't come along. Right. And Thomas Jefferson, he's influenced by the enlightenment, but he's also arguing for a traditionalist position, which is pretty anti-enlightenment. So it's, so in America, the enlightenment really doesn't hit its peak until the forties. Um, and, the thirties and the forties. Uh, and some of that is because you've got the pressures from communism and fascism in the, on the, on the continent, um, on, on the European continent, having pretty significant influence through the universities, uh, through political, uh, the, the political pressures, you have a lot of, um, and this is not, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is, since been proven, but you had a lot of Russian influenced spies um, get into high levels in institutions and, and turn some of our institutions. But then you had um, a, a really s- significant eugenics movement yeah. that um, pressed onto the pressed into the culture on, on the, the left, the progressive side were really heavy on eugenics. So uh, the, a lot of the racism, that you see in the sixties is um, in the fifties and the sixties, uh, but the sixties, especially that's not the historic kind of racism when we had, we had yeah, a racism a, problem. Yeah, there yeah. was a whole new kind of racism um, th- that was, that came in the, through the eugenics movement, um, you know, Planned Parenthood is established. The uh, they're, they're publishing Planned Parenthood is paying to have Hitler's Nazi doctors, papers published in America um, about the importance of the, the, the purity of the Aryan race. And um, you, you have the Ku Klux Klan funding Planned Parenthood um, t- for the, that racial separatism. So that really is kind of the peak of the Enlightenment. Which is um, kind of weird because you have W.E.B. Du Bois who's going over to Germany. It's kind of like, wow, they got it put together over here. You know, well, you know, but, it's kind of like was was he a uh, in favor of segregation? I can't. No, no. W.E. Du Bois is a. W. Um, du Bois. He, uh, he um, um, trying to remember exactly. I always get the colleges he graduated from, but he was a black voice, um, one of the leading guys uh, in black thought at the time. Very well known. Um, kind of falls into the I wouldn't say completely black liberation theology, but he would be in line with some of that stuff, too. Okay. Um so yeah, he's when, he, when did he go to Germany? I haven't heard this story. This is, oh, let me look it up real quick. Because because you had some really interesting things going on. So you had uh, Americans visiting Ghanaian sociologists. I never heard of that part, but go ahead. He visiting Russia, and they would set it up so that you they never saw anything that they were doing that they didn't want them to see, and so. And they were filling their grain sheds with sand three quarters of the way and then putting grain across the top of it so that Americans were walking away saying, oh, my gosh, they're so much more productive than we are. They have so much more grain in store than we do. They have all this. But it was all faked. Um, then that's the trips to Russia. I'm I'm not familiar with W.E.B. Boys. Yeah, W.E.B. Boys. He, he was uh, a... Uh, Kenneth Barkin wrote a paper on it about his love affair with Imperial Germany. I think what he was impressed with was 
the idea of um, how the economy worked, how socialism kind of worked in that whole setup. Yeah. Um, and the, there, the kind of socialism um, that Italy and Germany had was much closer to the socialism that we have here. Um, it's, it's more fascism where the corporations and the government figure out how to do things to their own to, that are mutually beneficial. Yeah. 1892, um, I think is when he was over there. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's before, um, that's even before world war one. And so the, uh, so the, so at that point, yeah, it wasn't really fascism so much as that that early socialism. So you you begin the establishment of they they had they would have newly had uh, government school systems and uh, and a lot of those things depend upon the the momentum that Christendom provided to to continue working. You know, so there's a, a certain amount of momentum that Christendom provides that then is available to socialism for a short time. <laughs> mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, you know, there's also just the Germans were a very efficient people. They were a, a people that, that were really committed to community for a long time. And yeah, but they still weren't nice to France at that time. I'm just saying, <laughs> Oh no, that the, I mean, so the enlightenment, um, so mercantilism at, yeah. is a sort of enlightenment philosophy of international finance that led to all of the wars kind of restarting. <laughs> you Say that last part again. So mercantilism is an enlightenment understanding of international finance that brings people into rivalry uh, internationally. Uh, where everyone's trying to have more exports than imports. Right. And so, because that they, they believed that, that there was a, a limited amount of wealth. And if you were exporting, um, then you were gaining wealth. If you were importing, you were, you were sending your wealth to someone else. So everybody and tried to have, more exports than imports. And part of the ways that they did that was as much as people don't, people kind of like mercantilism in our culture now, especially liberals, but that is absolutely in every way a form of colonization because the way that you got mercantilism to work better for you is if you colonize a place, colonies were the ones that were sending you all the wealth, right? You could get more from them. Yep. So you, you colonies counted as a place to export to. Yeah. And so, you know, um, I mean, that's, so you you have India um, and the in India and England, the Congo and England, you, you, where you've got these places where you have a colony established and they are not allowed to import from anyone else there. And um, the and England can export everything to them and they're required to buy it yep. so that England is gaining wealth and they are actually taking advantage of. The Congolese and the people in India. Now they're they're giving some things as well, right? Common law tradition. They're giving certain certain understandings of freedom, and but they're financially they're taking and not giving. 
but it becomes from an enlightenment false understanding of wealth, right? That, that we live in a, in a world that is limited, yeah. right? We live in a world yeah. in which wealth is, there's a, is limited. It's a pie that's being divided up. And for you to get more, you have to take from somebody else. That's an, that's not a true understanding of the world. Um, you take God out of it, out of the equation, um, where the father can and the son can send the spirit eternally and you never have less spirit right right but there's a there's an infinite uh there's an infinite goodness an infinite generosity um, an infinite self-giving that is infinite backwards into time that's infinite in the present and that is infinite in the going forward into the future uh there's and that that God is the creator of this place and is continually present in it, continually giving, right? So you're never going to run out, um, that, that, so, uh, that we don't, we don't expect, um, limited for you, you don't, so you have to care for your resources, but you don't expect to run out, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you can run out. Like if you go out and you eat all of the um, eggs and kill all of the female uh, quail, right, you're going to not have more quail. Um, so we're told to take care of the resources in a particular way, but not because uh, of a limitation on God's generosity. Yeah, um, actually, when you do things the way that this is why we were talking about, like, um, it's funny even with the pandemic, even with the climate change stuff, the only reason you have lack or you run out is because you're not doing it the way that God has said do it. Right. And so yeah. because then you don't reap blessings, God has an infinite amount of blessings to give you in covenant, in yeah. obedience, in relationship. It doesn't end. It only gets better. This is one of the things that me and my wife always so mad about is like, People didn't tell us marriage was going to get better. They only <laughs> right. acted like it had a peak and a ceiling. And then after that, you know, yeah. it's not as good anymore. kids. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they, they're like, oh, that's, no one ever said, let me tell you something, son. Marriage? Man, ain't it's no ceiling better, to this better, thing. Better. Yeah, yeah, it just keeps going and going and going. And then, man, they just don't talk about it. They, I mean, in every aspect of it. And so, but that's, it's, that's because I started to realize that people had a different covenantal relationship about marriage and understanding right. about marriage than the right one. So then no, your marriage didn't get any better. Yeah. It didn't grow. You were always struggling, it, you know, and that's the same thing. You can see a family that doesn't have a whole lot. And these folks will run around here. Like they got the whole world in their hands. And you're like, what is up with y'all folks? And they're like, they don't see what you see. You think that, oh man, they're, oh poor them. They are sitting around here, just the most joyful, happy people, excited right. about every little thing. And the world is in abundance to them. And they don't see, you know, that things, if you, you think like, I could never live like it. They're like, how else could you live? You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, what I are mean, you talking about? It, but it's because a lot of husbands go into their marriage like vampires. <laughs> they, they go and seeing how much can I get? Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. And they don't realize that the more they give, the more they get, right? If you love your wife, you're loving yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Who doesn't love their own body and care for it and cherish it, right? Um, they, 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 they don't trust 
that God has more for them than they can see. Right. So they take what they can, they take what they can get because they think that's all there is. It's, it's the same economic error. It's an enlightenment economic error. You, you see, I mean, it's like a, the, the whale oil crisis of the mm-hmm. 1800s, right? Oh no, we're running out of whale oil. We better subsidize it. Um, so that we can get more whale oil. Whereas oil and gasoline is in the process of being discovered and invented and they reject it because they, in order to subsidize the whale oil industry, not realizing that there is more energy in a gallon of gasoline than in anything they've ever discovered, anything Mm. we've ever found, anything we've ever discovered up until nuclear power. There's the, there's not a uh, um, more efficient, more uh, inexpensive, more uh, uh, safer, uh, safer form of energy. And the biggest thing for a um, economic advance is inexpensive energy, right? Gasoline is there and they're subsidizing the whale oil industry or crude oil is there and they're subsidizing the whale oil industry um, because they think because they're thinking in terms of limitations we've got to get it first we've got to get to that whale oil first um because there's not enough energy to go around and you know now there's there's so many ways to get energy now the government has a tendency to subsidize the least efficient of them that's what government does. <laughs> do you think but, the do you think the way that we understand enlightenment too is um a responsibility a put off of responsibility and duty that we have? So if you start having an authority you start misplacing the authority be, because of an enlightenment understanding, then does that also mean that you start putting off your own responsibility and authority to create? And let me, let me kind of flesh that out a little bit. Um, men by nature are supposed to be taking dominion. They're supposed to be creating. They're supposed to be finding out what's new. This made me think about this as you're talking about the, um, the oil stuff. It's like, okay, let's say, for instance, that the oil absolutely is running out. A man that fears God and knows the kind of world that we're living in is like, okay, God doesn't want us to use oil anymore. Okay, let's just say that was for a real right. thing. Yeah, there's got to be thing. something else amazing that, out here that God wants us to use and find and discover and make something with. I'm gonna get to yeah. work on that. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. And the, um, I mean, I I don't I have read enough of the science to not believe that oil is a non-renewable yeah, resource. I, right. Me too. I, yeah. So I I think it's a renewable resource. I think it's sure. Yeah. Created by bacteria and all that. Yeah. So <laughs> it's one of those amazing like air is going to yeah. be, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it, uh, and I think we've found really efficient and clean ways to retrieve it and use it and all that. But, but let's say that's, that it wasn't true, that there really was yeah. a, a, a crisis. Like we're going to run out. Um, it, that's exactly what we do. We say, you, you know, you do the, the it's like a, uh, oh, the guy that created Tesla. Yeah. What's his name? He's They they have a new solar panel that is actually efficient, right? Old solar panels, they're not efficient. Uh, there are places where there's a good use for them, and but but they're not they're not great. They, you're not they talking about been great. You're not talking about Elon. Elon. Right? Elon. Okay. Musk. Oh, I thought yeah, you were yeah. talking about somebody else. The original. No, no. Theory. So he so he's he's working on a new solar panel, which I think is a 
brilliant idea, right? He's, he said, there's a more efficient way to use the energy of the sun and convert it into a, a, a energy that we can use for, to, to bless our neighbor with, to create and um, take care of our families and, and all that, that, um, and that's, that's how we should think, not like, uh oh, um, let's clamp down, right? So, uh, if, if, if we were actually in the kind of oil crisis that we're in right now, my advice would be, well, let's use it all up quick and find out what's next. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Because there's something else, right? If, if, if oil is a limited resource and God's plan for oil, was that it's going to lift 95% of the world out of poverty in 150 years. Um, then let's get the rest of that oil out of the ground and move on to what's next because God's got something even better for us. Because there might be something at the, even the end of that. So, but my whole point in asking that is because of the way that we are thinking now with enlightenment thinking, our ability to want to produce and want to create is almost in the same way, moving responsibility and authority over to someone else and not taking it within our own self. Because what I see inside the, so I look at government schools, the way that they're set up and the way they're operating is post enlightenment thinking. Mm -hmm. Right. And so with, yeah, because it's a question of what is this creature that is my child? Yes. And whose is is, it? Whose is it? Whose is it? (laughs) It, Well, the question of whose is it is answered by, the question of what is it, right? Yeah. Is this yeah. is this a um, another cog in the state's mm-hmm. uh, machine, right? If it is, then the government better get busy educating it. Right. If this child is my my progeny, that he is he is the next inheritor of the covenants that God has made with me, um, and that he's brought me into and he is the uh, inheritor of uh, of of uh, all my property and and uh the and is the extension the continued extension of the image of god into the world yeah through uh, me and my wife then you you educate him differently you tr- you treat him differently than uh i mean so marks wanted the state to take over the university system and turn them all into tech schools right? uh, because he believed that that was a, the easiest way to move to a government control. That's what economy. we're doing right now. It is. Right? That's, That's exactly what we're, doing. what we're doing. You can't go get uh, um, from the, the schools that take um, government money. You can't go get a real education from anymore. You go get a tech degree. You are prepared by the university system to become a cog in the econo- the machine of the economy. Right? That um, it's a bad sci-fi novel, and we're and we ha- don't recognize it. <laughs> what are but, you going to college for? <laughs> yeah, what are you going to college for? <laughs> to become a better, better human. Human, right? To, yeah. To be right. rehumanized to throw off a little bit more of the uh the the control of the curse that Adam uh, brought into the mm, world right that's actually what college is for right that, that's what that's what education that's, that's what, what educa- education yeah, yeah. is for and that's yeah. why and no one college understands is an extension 
of education that is aimed at that was aimed at particular um you know if you were going to become a lawyer or become become a pastor or something there were then you needed an extension on your education uh, but it, it had a particular goal in mind that wasn't to give you a job right if you were going to get a job you went to you you went tradesman. to a tradesman and said hey yeah. can you train me in the trade i i had a friend who became an uh, an architect and and he said it doesn't matter if they've got a degree in architecture or not we still have to train them in our system that's right so the, um, i could take somebody that had no training in architecture and somebody that has a master's degree in architecture and i start them in the same place and they end up in the same place but right now so basically the the government is willing to subsidize the trades so that they don't have to do their own training. Um, and the trades are like, okay, well, if you're going to pay for it, that's, then I don't have to pay for it. And that was Marx's plan was with the government starts subsidizing the, the, uh, the training of tradesmen, um, then the government eventually controls the economy. And what are we arguing about right now? The very thing that's going on right now is loans extended by the government for people in trades and colleges. Yep. That's what, and say, Hey, can you default the loans? Biden just came out recently and defaulted, uh, not default, uh, but paused loans paused for loans. Yeah. yeah. So, and so, but that all also, so I'm thinking about the enlightenment and I'm thinking about work and I'm thinking that what the enlightenment has done as we begin to bite off more and more of our living and be saturated by it has put a halt on the very thing that man was created to do. And that's work. And so, right. To be able to go out and to chart a new path, think new thoughts, find new glories in the earth that God has created so that we can bless our neighbors with has has had a, a been stalled because of the way that we think the common thought about things now has shifted to post enlightenment and all of the glories that helped build and establish what America was have been um, redirected because of this type of thinking. Is, is, is that fair to say? Is that fair to look inside the enlightenment yeah, and then apply so. that? I think yeah. so, because what the, we have re-centered, I mean, if you think like in, you think, think about what, what do people, how do people decide what businesses they're going to start? Well, they've wants to make the most money. <laughs> what's we, they sometimes, but usually it's, well, what's the government subsidizing right now? Yeah. Oh, that's true. Right. Oh, yeah. So the we the government decides what for the most part the government government is the one who decides what uh, what dominion advancements do or don't end up being made because that's a faithless way of doing it. Uh, I moved away from my microphone again because that's a faithless way of doing it. You end up uh, with poor results, right? You, you don't end up with the blessing of God because it's a faithless way of stepping out and moving mm -hmm. forward. So we, um, but men that understand that the difference is made in the, in the smile, the smile of God is what we want. Right. Yeah. And you, it's, you, there's no, Hebrew tells us there's no way to please God except by faith. So whatever you're doing, you say, well, what promises of God do I have here? Faith 
is living according to the promises of God. It's, it, it's, um, you know, it, it's to, to have a promise of God and not living according, live according to it is faithlessness to not have a promise of God and then try to step out in faith where you don't have a promise is presumption. Mm. Right? Um, but mm. faith is living. But you're still faithlessness. <laughs> yeah, it's still faithlessness, right? But yeah. it's a different sort. You know, um, yeah. That that presumption says, okay, I don't have a promise from God, but I'm going to, to act like I do and step out in faith. And you see, you see that in the charismatic movement, but you see it in a lot of places. Yeah, because um, it's just that's just assuming that I know God. He's a good God. I'm gonna go reach out and grab the ark and save him. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, or That's, I'm going to peek into it and 50,000 people are going to die. You know? you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to light the fire that God's <laughs> right. supposed to light. I'm going to light it. Yeah. That way I'm helping God out. Yeah. My, <laughs> my son just read that story about a, a week ago in his in his morning Bible reading, and he came in and he was like, Dad, you got to explain Nadab and Abihu to me. Yeah. Okay, they offered strange fire. Like, I don't get it. But he just didn't know the whole story. He right. he not connected the fact that God had provided a fire and that and so as soon as he told that told him that he was like, Oh, okay, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what was so crazy about like it it was reading you I mean, people who man, I took my kids, we've been going through the Bible from the beginning and been going we'll get to Leviticus. It's amazing how much they understood. They were like, You idiots. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. get the numbers. It was, it was like, but God told you right here how you were supposed to be doing the things you were supposed to be doing. No wonder. And I remember them going through that and they laughed. Right. A little, yeah. Yeah, they, Cause they were like, didn't you remember he lit the fire? Like, <laughs> yeah. He was the one that wasn't your sacrifice to take. It, right. You know, it wasn't, right. he's the one that consumed it. Right. And, um, and there's so, it's so funny. Listen, watching with the kids as they go through, because sometimes I think I even forget it, the context of everything as I'm working through it. So I don't grasp, I don't grasp, like I've read it for the first time. And with them, they're like, like, yeah. it's, we just read here. Yeah. <laughs> you did there. It, yeah. But they're, they're being raised like this is a historical religion, right? So that mm. what, what God did earlier continues to mm. have an effect in the present. That So I mean, I remember the first time. Mm. The first time I was in, so was, I just started going to church. First time I went to church, it was sent um, afterwards, they're like, okay, now all the high schoolers go over here for high school, Sunday school. I was like, oh, okay, here I am, you know, high schooler. So I go down there and they're reading the story of Jonah, uh, Jonah and the whale. And I'd never heard it before. I, so I'm a teenager, this and and she's like, and then you know he runs away from God, and then he's swallowed by. They throw him overboard. He's swallowed by a whale, and then the teacher said, "And you guys know how it ends." And I didn't know how it ended, so I had to raise my hand and say, "Like I've never heard this story before, so I don't know how it ends. Can you tell me the ending?" Like, oh, okay. Well, he's uh, vomited onto the land, and then he goes in and he tells them. And, and I'm like, that doesn't make it better. <laughs> That's the craziest. You guys are all just sitting here like, yeah, yeah, this is the story. You know, and I'm like, this is the craziest story. Like, you guys all believe this is true. What am I getting myself into? This is crazy. Um, and uh, the it, it's this when you don't know anything, 
yeah. and you just pump into the middle of the story. Like th- these are just crazy moments. But as soon as you know the whole story and you understand where you are in the history, then it's not that it becomes less crazy because he's still swallowed by a sea monster and then vomited onto the land. That's insane. But all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, there is a there is a whole layer of glory that I didn't know, that I didn't understand, <laughs> that I didn't see. Um, and all I saw was the crazy, and I didn't see that actually this the crazy story is actually is reflecting uh, is reflecting something incredible. Yeah, time so, out, time out, time out. We got sea monsters. Yeah, nobody told me about sea monsters. I'm in, but Uh, yeah, this makes me not want to go surfing. But yeah, (laughs) (laughs) ain't that the truth? (laughs) Right. Yeah. The the so I think there's the um, the the book of Leviticus didn't make any sense to me the first time I tried to read it. Right. But once you understand the story, understand where you are, and understand how. Uh, you know how rituals work and and understand the the importance of them and how rituals communicate which is something that we don't really do anymore i just had a um you know you even weddings uh-huh. um have been postmodern gutted, yeah of yeah, their right absolutely as a you go to a wedding and you see somebody get up and they wrote their own vows and one of them vows like, I vow that I will always be a Seahawks fan for you. And you're like, do you understand this is a public legal vow that you're taking? And he could walk, he could divorce you for rooting for another team legally. <laughs> like it's a public legal vow embedded in a ritual that changes your relationship. Your standing, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but we don't like, we don't have any concept of, ritual of uh, of um of ritual historic the the way rituals shift and change history over time um and so when you read leviticus you're, it doesn't make any sense get, you yeah. know and that goes back to communion too though that goes back to the mm-hmm. lord's table like you, do you understand so then passover like what is that so you know we don't, we, there is, uh, which by the way, I just want to say, I don't know how you don't make that argument for children being able to, anyway, but <laughs> I mean, because if you, if you historically look mm-hmm. at this and you attach everything to it from the purpose that you were doing communion goes all the way back to Genesis and then to Exodus and the leaving and what's happening there and the importance of all that, like what is going on that this has become a tradition why do you have that tradition? Why do you do right. this? You know, um, if you don't understand that, then when you come to the Lord's table, you are, we were talking, were we talking about this last time and the time before? Uh, maybe we just have talking about it in, per- in person, but we have no idea that we are having a historical moment at that time yeah. with heaven. With heaven. And people yep. who have come before us, we're actually meeting with them at that moment to break bread and drink wine. Yeah. And we, we, you know, after my uh, dad died, I was talking with my kids and about how, well, Mm. yeah, dad's not with us anymore, except for he will be when we come to the Lord's Supper together this Sunday. Wow. Right. So he, he's. Dang, dude. Right. Because he, he, 
is part of the great cloud of witnesses now. He's part of the uh, the the those in Christ that have gone before us. You know, all of the things that we say at the supper. I began to feel when mm. my dad died. Right? Like, mm. okay. So he now we come to the table and we have communion with all the saints. Right? We're we're experiencing the communion of the saints. Um, so, the, and those are things that we don't, um, we don't even know anymore. I mean, we just, we don't know and believe. And I, I thought I really liked the, the new Pixar, was it Pixar? No, I can't remember who made Coco. I think it was Pixar. But yeah, it was Pixar. He, he goes, um, it's the Dia de los Muertos of Mexico. And so the, I, I like movies like that where they just say, what if this was 100% true? What kind of story could we tell mm. um, within this tradition, this Mexican tradition? It's a, it's a beautiful movie. And, but he, he goes and sees his ancestors. Right? And it, um, it, there's a, it reminded me of Chesterton's uh, democracy of the tradition is the democracy of the dead. Just giving, giving the people that have gone before us a vote in what it is that we do going forward. Right. It, um, there's a, a Neil Gaiman also wrote a book called the uh, the Graveyard Book um, that's about the same thing, right? Um, what what if you actually knew what your ancestors thought about things and then let them inform you um, in, in moving forward, gave them a vote uh, that was, and that's actually what tradition is. Right? Yeah, um, you know, so man, we're talking for forever, but <laughs> you know. We're talking about enlightenment, and yet we're talking about history. And inside the reform world, there's this huge enjoyment of the Puritans. There's this huge enjoyment mm-hmm. of the super sanctified group of people. And yet, I don't find many people who are embracing that kind of history of who they actually were and what they were trying to able, what they were really trying to do. So they don't bring the Puritans into the conversation with them. What I see them doing is trying to um, take everything back to that, right? Like, so they 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 play dress up, right? You know what I mean? And and mm-hmm. so and and instead of you know, I'm hoping that what I'm building with my family, what we haven't had for three generations, I'm hoping by the third generation of my grandchildren or great-grandchildren, that they're going to be at a place thinking and theologically and in, in practicing the world that I couldn't have even imagined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what right? we should all want, right? Not, so, put, not trying to do what I did, right? Like, I want you to take all this information, take all... It's like what, what David did with, with, um, with Solomon. I want you to take the materials and build with it, not just gather more materials... Yeah, yeah. Go build the temple. Go go make the thing that I was trying to make that I couldn't make. Take that stuff and go make something with it and build with it and then make it grand and then pass it off to the next generation and let them paint it, you know, and then pass it out to the next generation. Let them build three more. Let them take this and build this even broader. I mean, but I don't think that when we read the Puritans, we aren't trying to reform theology. Reformedom has not is not trying to build out. It's it's suffocating itself. It's turning in on itself and only looking at itself it's separated itself from the world it's not seeing civilization and the culture of it has become internal it it doesn't 
see civil magistrate as an important entity that they're supposed to be prophetic to. Um, I mean, I'll say this again, our church conferences never deal <laughs> with the role and responsibility of the church to the rest of the culture. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, and there's a couple of issues that I think stop us from doing it. One is it's like God in the reformed church. It's like God has given us a giant vat of tiger balm that can go out and, and comfort and heal the world. And we spend all our time describing it and we never open it up and go out Bro, there and actually heal the world. Right. That's exactly like, what I said about the SBC. They got this amazing sword and they always put it on the yeah, counter and they're like, Oh, yeah. it's the sharpest like, sword you'll ever see. Let me tell you about this sword. And like how many giants it killed. Right. It's like, maybe we should go kill some more. Let's go swing it. Right. Um, it's a, so Romans 13, I, Jason Romans 13. <laughs> no. And I, I think it's, it, it's unfortunate, right? Um, Spurgeon has a great quote where, uh, and Kierkegaard says something similar that, that, uh, the word of God is like a lion and, yeah. um, we take our commentaries and we build a beautiful cage around the lion. So, so, and then we describe the cage to people, um, rather than letting the lion out and letting it roar itself. Right. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this in terms of, he says, we read about the, the, uh, the great texts rather than reading them as if somehow reading them is too hard for us. And so we have to read people telling us about them rather than reading them. We treat the Bible the same way. People, we, we tell people about the commentaries we've read about the Bible rather than just preaching the Bible. So, um, and uh, Kierkegaard uses the metaphor uh, for the Dutch pastors of his day. He said they, they, um, before they go to read the Bible, they fill their pants with uh, commentaries so that the Bible doesn't have the ability to spank them. <laughs> it's, Ouch. It's so good, right? Ouch. But we, um, as if this, the, but the, the spirit has promised where his power to recreate the world is. It's in the word of God, right? The word that created the world has the power to recreate it. And, but we, what we put it at a distance and we don't preach it. Um, but then in terms of that generational knowledge is, you know, I like to, to think of it as we're captains of a ship called our life and our job is to, and, and each of us goes out and crashes it (laughs) and we go out and we shipwreck our lives somewhere. And then God gives us kids and says, now train them how to sail. And our job is to say, okay, let me tell you where some rocks are so that you can get further than me. I crashed here. I crashed on those rocks there. I crashed on those rocks there. So sail straight through those and you'll make it further. And then they're going to crash on some rocks that are further along. And it's their job to then raise up God will give them people to train to sail and he can say, okay, your grandpa crashed on that rock, that rock, that rock, your, I crashed on that rock, that rock and that rock. So sail straight through there and he can get further along. And then he can then they can say to their kids when they're training them to sail from their shipwreck, 
Okay, your great-grandpa crashed there, there, and there. Your grandpa crashed there, there, and there. I crashed here, here, and here. So sail straight through there and make it further, right? We're going to crash our lives. We're sinners. That's why we need the grace of God. Our job, though, is to, to pass on the knowledge we gained in it while shipwrecking our lives um, to the next generation. We're, we don't understand what to do with the guilt and the shame of the fact that we crashed our lives. We don't know how to take it to the cross and leave it there so that we can then turn around and talk about the fact that we shipwrecked our lives in a helpful way because we're still bound by the guilt and the shame that Jesus took or that Jesus took on the cross. And so we're, we can't, we don't parent well because we're bound up in the shame and the fear and the guilt uh, of our sin. And, and so we can't parent from our shipwreck well. And so that's my, that's, that's what I'm hoping to do is, is stand on my shipwreck. Because then what God does is he, he pulls a bunch of people that shipwreck their lives together and each of them provides a piece and he builds the church out of it. And he builds this glorious ship out of a bunch of shipwrecks. Um, because he, 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 we we've all torn our sails and he grabs a piece from each of us and he knits them together into a new sail and builds his church out of shipwrecks. And, and that ship then sails the world. You know, if what happened to me when I got into this story in my life, whatever it was, I didn't have those stories of where my forefathers or my grandparents or my parents, I didn't know where they shipwrecked at. Yeah. So then I knew by the grace of God, there are some places I was like, oh, these are these are hazards. Okay. Right. <laughs> Here's how yeah. you sail through them. The intimate knowledge of shipwreck wasn't apparent to me in my relationships. And so I probably hit some of the same places that they hit in the process. And historically, when you think about this historically, if you don't know the history, then you're gonna repeat the same shipwrecks, which I'm starting to see right now. So if that's true in the way you're talking about, and I think it is, we are 60 years, 75, uh, 76 years now removed from Auschwitz, 60 years removed from the civil rights movement. And both of those two things have almost come back around full circle and in, um, in to the freest place in the world so you got Austria who's repeating it almost yep. exactly right now. You have Germany who's almost repeating it exactly right now. You have Australians. I mean, they're going through it. You have laws now in Canada that won't allow you to proclaim the gospel, the metaphysical structures of a man and woman through, right. you know, trans there, the therapy movement. Now you can't, you know, so, and, and in America, we're, the civil rights of an individual to be able to make their own decisions about their health care and lifestyle are excuse me, absolutely under attack. And then parenting, all that is just right back again from the 40s to the 50s, um, 60s. And it's amazing that the reason we're there when I look at it is like the, the history, just recent history is gone. Yeah let alone covenantal history. Right. We, right. We, we, we can't identify where we are in the story or what character we are in the story 
because we haven't read the previous chapters. And so we don't know. We just think we're coming to it at the beginning of the book. But we're actually being more like you were when telling the story of Jonah. It's like we're actually coming in the middle. <laughs> the yeah, story's been step, going on. Stepping right into the middle. Yeah, and, and we don't. And you know, the the best thing that you can do is look at your kids and tell them the stories. Right. I, so this is I know we're heading over two hours now, but now it's about to get real right so my my um i got my high school girlfriend pregnant right and it was uh, traumatic hard difficult you know I, I was a new christian um and so you know i suddenly also knew that it was wrong because <laughs> mm-hmm. i didn't before that and i i uh come come home and have to basically tell my parents I got my girlfriend pregnant. Right. And it's, uh, it it doesn't go well, obviously. Right. That's not anything that your parents want to hear. And so we, um, I end up, uh, you know, God walks me through it. The, we lost the baby and it was really, really hard and difficult, but God, used in really formative ways to um, you know, grow me up as a Christian, grow me up as a man and all sorts of things. Um, how many years later? 15 years later, my, after my dad had already died, uh, I get a phone call from uh, a guy. I'm your brother. Right? Find out my dad had gotten his high school girlfriend pregnant. He never told me. He never told me before. He didn't tell me after. Right? None of that. I so, and and I look back and I think, would it have been different had my dad said, "Hey, you're in your teenage years. You're looking at girls. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you about my failure." Mm-hmm. Had it would it have been different in the moment if I had come and said, "Hey." this is what happened. I got my high school girlfriend pregnant. He said, you know what? I did the same thing. Your life's not over. Cause I thought my life was over. I mm. mean, I, it, it go into deep depression, deep, you know, it's like, uh, thinking, okay, my life's over. I may as well give up. Just throw my hands up. Don't care about anything. And he, had my dad said, Hey, ha- same thing happened to me. I did. This, I made the same mistake. Your life's not over. Right. There, um, because none of that happened, it took years and years for me to, mm. to deal with the shame and, and, um, and to come to grips with the fact that, uh, that every bad thing that happened in my life was not a continual punishment from God. Right. Mm. Um, condemnation heaped condemnation, upon itself. Right? Yeah. yeah. I didn't, I didn't understand what to do with the shame involved in it. Um, and so eventually you know, God brings people and the right books into your life and the scriptures into your life at the right times. And you realize, and you come to understand why it's so important that Jesus died on the cross naked to take our shame and that, that that shame is actually gone. It was nailed to the cross and God doesn't look at us with any, he's not. So when the, some of my favorite verses are, he is not ashamed to call you brothers. Mm. Right. Um, And 
God gave me an older brother that, that was amazing, walked me through so many things. And so uh, the fact that Christ is our older brother is also really, you know, powerful to me because of the role that my older brother had in my life, walking me through a lot of these times. So you, but as I, one of the things that I realized along the way was, oh my gosh, I've never told my kids this. And that was what my dad did. I had, and so sit down my kids, tell them here, let me tell you the whole story. Any questions you've got, any questions you ever have about it later, you know, whatever, this is an open topic. Um, my <laughs> sin is an open topic for you kids because I don't want them to make the same mistake, but I also want them to learn the lessons that I learned about shame and fear and guilt Mm -hmm. when they're young, right? I don't want, I want them to always know what do you do with sin? What do you do with embarrassing sin? You confess it to the Lord. You, um, you, you don't let, you don't bury it. You don't put it under the carpet. You confess it. You, that, that that's where the freedom is. And, um, with the, the hope being sail further, right? Sail further than me, sail further than me. Here's where I shipwrecked here. Um, and, that that is where we have power and authority right some people have been given civic authority some people haven't when you're a parent you have covenantal authority and um and if you love your kids well you also have moral power more moral authority to speak the good news into their life and to blow wind in their sails Mm. Right. Um, so that's a, I think that it's easy to get overwhelmed when you look around and you're like, what do I do? So, well, you've got kids start there. You've got a wife, you've got a husband, you, you are, when you pray for your spouse, you're praying from the inside, right? You're mm. not praying as an outsider for your spouse. You're praying from the inside for your spouse, for your kids. Right? Um, so you have the authority to bring things before the Lord that you don't have for your, for just a neighbor. Right. So, um, we can, that's, we always need to start in the place where God has given us, uh, the authority to love people. Well, love people from the inside, you know, um, and live that hierarchy well in a loving prayerful way. And then trust that God gives the faithful more uh, when they are faithful with the little that they've been given. Ain't nothing else I need to say over that. (laughs) It's done.